Hey everyone, this is Julie Stegman. I'm one of the pastors at Resurrection City Church. If you don't attend Res City and somehow stumbled onto this podcast, hey, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, we are a church in the Hamlin Midway neighborhood of St. Paul. And right now we are doing a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is a famous sermon that Jesus himself gave and that is recorded in Matthew chapters five and se- five through seven. And during the sermon series, we have been taking questions from all of you. And one of our recent messages received so many great questions. And unfortunately, we weren't able to answer all of them at the time. And so we decided to gather some friends and record a little podcast episode where we could wrestle through the questions together. At Resurrection City, we think it's important to read scripture in the context of community. We also think it's okay to ask hard questions and to not always know the answers. So in today's discussion, this is not an official stance of Resurrection City Church. This is just a group of friends coming together, reading scripture and asking hard questions and wrestling through it. So if you don't agree or if you have questions still after you listen to this, that is totally okay. We all do too. Uh, Before we jump into the conversation and the questions, I want to give you a quick recap of the message that these questions came from. So on October 9th, Joel preached from Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48, on Jesus's radical command to love our enemies. If you weren't there that week and you haven't had a chance to listen to that message, I encourage you to stop this episode uh, so that you can go back and listen to the original because I think you're going to understand these questions and where we're coming from a lot better if you've heard the whole thing. So I encourage you to go back and listen to that. Um, And then if you have already heard it, I'm going to kick us off by reading the passage for you as a reminder of what we'll be talking about tonight. So this is Matthew 5, 38 through 48. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So our conversation today will revolve around questions that came in from all of you during that message that was given on that passage. And today I'm joined by my husband and fellow co-pastor Joel and my friends Luke Sandstrom and Andrea Kidder. Hey everyone. What's up everyone? Looking forward to this conversation. I'm excited for it. Hey everyone. Happy to be here. We're also hoping to have Miles Trump join us, but unfortunately he isn't feeling well and couldn't make it tonight. So thanks, Joel, Andrea, and Luke, for all being willing to share with us today. All right, I want to start our discussion uh, around the idea of turning the other cheek. So we got two questions asking something similar. Basically, 
is there ever a time where we should not turn the other cheek? Uh, for example, if someone is in a position of power or authority and is abusing their power, is there a role or a place for not turning that cheek? Yeah, I think this is a really good question. I think it came in in a lot of various forms as well as people kind of digested this chunk of scripture because it is it is tough. I think one of the biggest takeaways is that, and just to say it out front, when people are abusing people and people are harming the innocents, we are called to advocate and defend the victims. So I think that goes without saying, and it's very, um, we see that throughout scripture. I think what can be tricky is that we're, we're trying to look at what Jesus is saying, the underlying, what is, what's the thought here? Um, and as we look at just turning the cheek, I think our thought is that um, we're afraid if we do that in practice, we're going to be taken advantage of, or it's seen similar. We're talking about with like Romans 13 and how we engage with the government. It seems this blanket kind of statement. Uh, I think really the point that Jesus is trying to make here is what is your thought? What is your heart behind that response that you're doing? Are you responding out of retaliation out of revenge? Um, and when you do respond, don't do all of those things because those things can destroy you. And you can tend to overcorrect um, back to where it talks about eye for an eye. You can go beyond that if you're responding out of anger in a way. One thing I just want to add, um, you know, the questions kind of specifically reference a power imbalance. And I think that that's really important to remember. I mean, Paul talks um, uh, about as, as far as it is possible with you, you know, live at peace with others. And that, that implies that there is some sort of like, you, you have some power and agency to then um, decide how you're going to respond. But in situations of abuse where a person in power is abusing, then uh, the, per the person being abused doesn't have the same power differential. And so turning the other cheek, I don't think is uh, like an explicit demand that is made in every situation. Um, so that power imbalance really needs to be taken into consideration as well. Yeah. And I think just, you know, like Luke, you said, like there is, you know, and, and Andrea, you just talked about what Paul says in Romans 12, like you do see this even in his, some of his letters, like they are not just kind of letting anything go in the communities, but they are kind of, they're being proactive. They're challenging people like to, to actually, you know, live, live it out on their end that they're not being the type of people who are taking advantage of each other. There's this passage in first Thessalonians four, where Paul is talking about like how, um, you know, people should be living sanctified, avoiding sexual immorality. Um, but he says that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Um, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Um, the Lord will punish all who commit such sins. Um, and, you know, so, like he's sp specifically talking about, I think he's, you know, targeting men, especially in that society there and just challenging them not to take advantage of each other. Um, kind of just saying that this is not, not going to fly. And we know Paul is willing to even expel people from the community. Um, you know, hope, hoping that would be redemptive for them that they would come back in eventually. But, but yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we definitely don't see a sort of just anything goes for the sake of turning the other cheek policy in the church, even when we really look at it. So, yeah. Yeah, I think you guys are all highlighting 
um, a helpful principle in reading scripture that we can use other parts of scripture to interpret scripture too. So just because it says it might sound one way in one piece, um, it's helpful to look at where you see similar ideas in other places and see, you know, how, how is it talked about there? Maybe are the, is the emphasis in a different place uh, because it's referencing something else or it's like highlighting another aspect of what it looks like to live in God's kingdom and, um, so I think I, that's just a helpful thing. I think we can get stuck sometimes when we pick up one thing and, and then we don't know what to do with it. And it's always good to look at it in the, the larger context. So thanks for highlighting that. And again, we'll just echo what Luke said, just of, yeah, abuse is not okay in any situation. And uh, that's something we see in the rest of scripture. We see the rest of the church comes in and steps in to to help make sure that that doesn't continue and doesn't happen, or at least that it should. So definitely if you are in any type of situation where you are experiencing abuse, uh, I do not think this verse is telling you that you should stay there. I think that's the opposite of what, what God would want in that situation. So kind of, uh, I guess, continuing on this idea of accountability for people, we also got a couple questions that had to do with um the idea of accountability for people who commit evil. So how Christians should or could think about the severity of consequences that should go with um, committing crimes uh, and in particular, the death penalty is something that came up. Yeah, I really appreciate that you said should or could, like how, sh- how Christians should or could think about consequences for evil, because I don't think that there is one you know, standard um, Christian perspective on the death penalty or any other consequences for crime. Um, I do think that in this particular section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not giving instructions to lawmakers or to the government about how they need to address the the presence of evil in the community. Um, And I think in other places throughout scripture, you know, God makes it pretty clear that one of the roles of government is to, you know, ensure justice and, and keep peace. And so I think that um, discipline and consequences for, for crime is going to be a part. But uh, I mean, so the death penalty, Jesus died on the cross for us, you know, he suffered the death penalty. Um, and so that doesn't necessarily mean that we get to say, oh, well, then yeah, for sure, like every country needs to have that. But um, I do think that there needs to be consequences for evil. And God also assures us that, um, you know, he will avenge the, the people who have experienced wrongdoing that it, it's it's his to avenge and so we don't need to worry or stress or freak out about it but I do think that uh, the role of, of government in keeping the peace and in ensuring justice for the people will involve some sort of repercussions when wrongdoing. Yeah I I agree totally with you said Andrea about you know Jesus's he's he is I mean the eye for an eye law it is a like civic law that was in place to kind of help define what responses to crime should be. Um, And Jesus is not talking about that. He's talking about us specifically. And I think the challenge a lot of times with, with this is, so how do we, you know, if we, we think the principles that Jesus gives us are, you know, good for human flourishing, like how do we apply those into actual civic settings? And that's, that is, you know, we'll get into some other questions about that, I think, too. Um, and and that's where this stuff gets kind of kind of muddy. Um, 
but I don't know. I'll speak for me personally. I kind of struggle with the idea of the death penalty as a response to, to, to violent crime. Um, you know, I, I would say, you know, why would we continue, you know, the, the death, like, can we stop the death? Like, can we stop it here? Um, and give this person a chance to, you know, we're, we're, you know, it, maybe taking away a chance for someone to repent of that sin at some point in the rest of their life and, and giving them a chance to, you know, experience God's forgiveness. And so I just wonder, like, is that the, you know, can we do, can we do other things? I don't know. It's tough. <laughs> it's such a challenging thing to consider. It really feels like, too, where you kind of land in this as a Christian is almost kind of a tell of maybe some of your hermeneutics or the way that you kind of read scripture. I think it's pretty easy to find a lot of verses in you know Genesis 9 pretty clearly talking about blood being shed for human blood being shed. Um, and so you might have a more kind of retributive justice view of the Bible and biblical justice. In the same sense, you can find verses where Jesus is forgiving people of capital punishment. And so you could have a very kind of restorative view of it. So um, I find that tension interesting. Actually, where you land might kind of speak about what kind of lens you are looking at the Bible through. Um, for me, I, you know, personally struggle with it as well. I, I have trouble with having kind of a, a belief system that um, is more bent towards restoration and, um, you know, the thought that no one's too far away from God and for God's grace and mercy. And so ending that um, seems difficult for me. It seems, again, a little more on the retributive side and less restorative. And how we actually trying to get people um, to change their ways and repent and, and move on. I, I don't know how big of a deterrent it is. That's a common argument for it. Um, but also, I think just practically, we've seen recently, too, there's a lot of racial and wealth disparities in our justice system. Um, there was a stat I heard not too long ago where a couple of states um, did some studies and up to like 10 percent of the people on death row um, were exonerated or uh, were thought to have issues in their cases. And so the thought that like possibly 10 percent of the people that were killing could actually not be guilty in a way seems um, problematic for me. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's difficult. And I think we can wrestle through it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important that you bring those disparities up Luke and just the, I mean, we live in a broken world, right? So like any system, even if it's a system that's attempting to limit the brokenness in the world is still going to be broken. And so the, the amount of human error that is involved in in who gets to make these decisions or how the decision decisions get made is uh, that's not something I would want to have that decision be on me, right? Like I wouldn't want the control to be able to choose whether or not someone lives or dies. Too much uh, control or uh, authority that that I don't think we were ever meant to have. <laughs> So I think it's a pretty, at least for me personally, it's not something I would ever want to be in a position of having to, to make those decisions. Uh, the next question kind of 
sort of fits into what we were just talking about, just in a different way. So someone in particular asked how people might think about the war after 9-11 and Osama bin Laden. So they asked specifically, should we have, we being the United States, focused on killing uh, bin Laden? Should we have entered into the war? Uh, And I know, again, there's a lot of layers to this. It's incredibly complicated. I don't understand to, or I don't pretend to understand at all. Um, But maybe thinking about it more broadly, in general, how do we as Christians think about how the government responds to something like a terrorist attack? Yeah, I got a lot of thoughts about (laughs) about this one. I thought a lot about this one before. Don't Um, worry, friends. Let's cut him off if he goes too long. (laughs) Um. So, I mean, we talked about this in the last last um, question about how, like, Jesus isn't speaking directly to governments. Um, and so to, you know, kind of derive, like, a strict, easy principle from what Jesus is saying to individuals and connect it to specific wars is really, really tr- tricky. Um, Paul talks in Romans 13 about how, like, the role of the state is to, in the the phrase uses wield the sword. Um, and I think he, he's talking about like, it's good for government to limit evil. Um, and I am sure he would talk about in terms of, you know, doing justice, but then also going and, you know, if the state wants to go and, and respond to some, some evil, like out, you know, somewhere else, like in the midst of war, I don't think, I think that kind of probably falls into what Paul's talking about. But in terms of how we should contribute to it or feel about it, I mean, I just, I don't know, I think a lot about, like, I like history a lot. And when you study history, you find out, um, like, every military action has a consequence. And so, like, you know, in, in after 9-11, it did feel good and righteous to go into the Middle East, into Afghanistan, and... Um, try to weed out this terrorist network and go to war with the countries of Afghanistan and eventually Iraq. Um, But when we look at this 20 years later, like it's super unpopular and we got stuck there and it was just this sort of embarrassing exit out of Afghanistan where, you know, we'd gone into liberate Afghanistan from the Taliban. And when we just left now a year ago, the Taliban is back in power, like nothing happened. And so it's this whole like, okay, we went over there, we did kill Osama bin Laden, we have prevented any sort of 9-11 equivalent events from happening. But I mean, we're going to find out that there's consequence to all this. And I mean, if you even look at where the terrorist networks that, um, you know, Al Qaeda grew out of came from in the first place, it's because of the Cold War and the Soviet Union and America getting involved in stuff there. And making everyone really angry and creating this anime, you know, this sort of, you know, anger at America in the first place. And so it's like, it's just, it just creates such a tricky gray, you know, it feels very black and white a lot of times in the moment where we say, we're going to go to war. We're going to stop this evil thing from happening. Um, But it creates these, like, it just keeps creating more and more of the same down the road. Like, I don't know. Like I, I, I think sometimes in the sermon I use dropping the atomic bomb on Japan. And so World War II gets brought up a lot and people say, well, you know, Jesus, if you take Jesus too seriously, like how could we have ever 
not gone to fight Nazis. And, and it's like, yeah, it's true. Like in that situation where the world was kind of faced with a choice of stopping this psychopath dictator, like it didn't seem like there was any other choice, but we get ourselves into these types of situations a lot of times because we can't, you know, because of what's come before it. And so, you know, one of the books I referenced in the sermon um, moral vision of the new testament by richard hayes he kind of talked he's responding to this and he says okay what if the christians in germany had refused to go along with hitler and the nazis what if the church which was a pretty powerful force in germany had stood up to hitler and said we're not going to stand for this we're not going to allow it to get to this point and i think that's probably where we should be thinking about this as christians is how do we keep ourselves from getting into these messes where we have to now get our hands dirty, responding to evil. How do we, how do we focus our energy on keeping things from getting to that point? And I think that's what we need to think more about as Christians is, is that question Um, because it will feel good and right. I think in the moment, and it might be absolutely necessary in a world that is super gray, but we're going to be living with the consequences forever or for, for far, you know, long after it happens. And that's just, I think the, the point of what Paul says in Romans 12, where he says like, you know, uh, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good because it's so easy to become overcome with by evil in these types of situations. Even if you start out trying to resist evil or, or limit it or something. So I don't know a lot of thoughts there, but. I just have an an anecdote that I think goes along really well with a lot of what you said, Joel, but um, so I'll date myself a little bit, but I graduated high school, like two, my, our ceremony was like two days after um, the news came out that Osama bin Laden had been killed. And I remember being, I, maybe I was just in a very celebratory mood because I was graduating high school, but I was swept up in this like patriotic euphoria of like, we got him, like, that was so cool. And Someone commented, I like posted on Facebook about it because that was what you did in 2011. But <laughs> someone I think commented people on, still do that now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like Facebook was like at its peak. Um, someone responded about like, that's not a very like Christian way of looking at it. And it was the first time I had ever really encountered someone in my same faith tradition having a very different stance on an issue like that. So overall, I think it was a super good exchange. But I sort of justified my my euphoria pulling from scripture in the Old Testament, talking about David dancing in the streets, uh, praising God for the victory over over his enemies. Um, and uh, I think that, yeah, in the moment it felt right to celebrate. But like you said, Joel, like we couldn't have foreseen that that we would still be, you know, 10 years after that moment, you know, finally being able to pull troops out of Afghanistan in the aftermath that, you know, that happened last summer um so yeah i just think all of what you said is super good and good to think think on and none of this is going to have a clear answer as far as like what do we do about it but yeah that's just my anecdote about that uh situation in particular yeah i appreciate you sharing that andrea i was actually going to ask um if any of you had ever changed your perspective on this because i think I don't know, it was a long time ago now that this all 9-11 happened and that all of those things started. And I think um, we're all allowed to change our minds and we're allowed to grow and to change and to ask hard questions. And uh, I think it's just a good example. 
of like, yeah, we can, we can learn and grow and we can change our minds. We can change it back. And, and as long as we're trying to seek Jesus as we do it, I think, I think that's all understandable. Yeah. I mean, I would just reiterate again, what everyone said, I think really good thoughts and good point that, you know, as we look at history, we do kind of find that on average, typically when you return violence with violence, it just continues the cycle of violence. And I think that's how we've seen this, how this kind of plays out. Um, I also think what is difficult, and I think this is uncomfortable, but it is good pointing out that, you know, the word terrorist is a definition, but it's also perspective. And um, you don't have to go very far back in U.S. history to realize that from other people's perspective, we operated in very ways that could be seen as terrorism. And so I think where this conversation gets us into, uh, which is tricky for believers, is like this kind of greater good discussion. And um, I think we can debate, negotiate that um, using the, the Bible and, and things as our basis. But we also need to just keep in mind that that greater good discussion oftentimes leads to a compromise of your standards and your beliefs. And I think that's easy to get caught up in, especially when there's so much fervor in your country where you're from moving one way, but it's tricky. And the church has gotten a lot of trouble and has really destroyed its witness because of the greater good argument. Yeah. I can't remember Andrea, if it was you or, or someone else who had shared with me, just kind of the crazy experience of going to museums and other countries and seeing how wars and history are presented from such different perspectives than what we maybe learned in our history classes, or if you were to go to a museum in the U.S., how it would be framed. Um, and so, yeah, I think, Luke, that's a good point. Just remember that um, we're only looking at it from one perspective, and America certainly has uh, its own problems and, and history as well. All right. Well, another very tricky question and example that someone sent in was about the tragedy that occurred in Uvalde, Texas. Um, so the question asked specifically if the tragedy uh, cautioned a timid response to an active shooter. And I just want to throw out there that that sounds like there's still a lot of questions and investigation going into what exactly happened in that situation and what went wrong or where the holdup was in the slower response. And so I, I don't know how helpful it is for us to get into um, debating or discussing that since it sounds like there's not even really clarity among those who are investigating it. But I think it, it asks the broader question that I, I've heard from a lot of people has kind of come up since talking about this of, of just how might you respond in a situation with an active shooter? The question of when is self-defense, um, how does that fit in? Is there a space for that? And and just how you think about that. So I'd love to hear if that's something you guys have previously wrestled with or are currently wrestling with, and if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, it's something I've thought a lot about. I think our church has thought a lot about. I think the self-defense question is one of the first things that comes up, probably the mid-sermon when Joel was talking, people were thinking about it. So I think it's a go-to one. Um, I heard something really helpful from a pastor not too long ago when he was asked a similar question. Um, and the context for the question was if someone broke into your home and was going to harm you, kind of what would be your response? And what he said was, 
is that um, if someone came in and was going to harm him and, his, him and his family, he would do everything in his power to mobilize them, to stop them, to disarm them, to keep them from doing that. But what he also said was he would try very hard to not fall into the trap of um, dehumanizing a person, understanding, unfortunately, in our country and in our world, hurt people hurt people. And so what he said was he would try to envision the person who broke into his house as his brother or as a family member, and they were having just a mental breakdown. And so in that case, it's, yes, I'm still going to try to stop you, try to knock you out, try to get your weapon away from you, but I'm not attacking you to hurt you. I, I still am trying to see the humanity in you and still trying to help you with still defending myself. And I acknowledge like this is a great thought experiment now and in the moment adrenaline is pumping. But I, if I look at this situation, I look at a lot of situations, a lot of violence, I think a lot of it comes down to just dehumanization. And if we can humanize people in situations, try to respond that way. Um, so like for me, I have decided I do not own a gun for protection. Um, I am not naive. I lock my doors. I have many non-lethal weapons in my house. But, um, you know, I, I remember taking a concealed and carry class with my dad a number of years ago. And, and early on, the, the instructor said he was very explicit about it. He said, if you pull out your weapon in self-defense, you are choosing to end someone's life. Um, he said, it's not like the movies. A gun is not a deterrent. You don't shoot to wound. You don't fire off a warning shot. If you're removing it, you're ending someone's life. And mm -hmm. the more I thought about that and the more I kind of researched to it, that's just not something, that's not a position I want to put myself in. Um, I understand being a 6'3 male who can easily defend themselves. That's a little easier to take. So, I mean, people should wrestle through this, but these are all things I've thought. And I think um, the perspective of trying to disarm, but still not dehumanize people um, and ultimately, you know, sacrifice in my life if that's needed to protect the people around me um, kind of be my thoughts along this one. Yeah, I just, I mean, I think what Joel said in the sermon fits along really well with what Luke was just describing. Um, but in general, like maybe not to fear death as much as we do. Um, not that, I don't know, I don't mean to say that to say like, go, go ahead and let someone take your life, you know, you need to make it easy for them. But um, I do think having lived in another culture for a number of years, uh, the American perspective on like safety and how much we can do to control it is, is not worldwide. It's not a, it's not like a, across the human spectrum phenomenon. Um, and we are kind of a country or a culture that's obsessed with personal safety. Um, in some ways, I think that that's really, really good. But I think what Luke said at the very end, they're like disarm, not dehumanize the other person and ultimately being willing and, and ready to, to sacrifice um, to protect and save others, I think is a, is a interesting perspective. Um, yeah. And then a uh, two, uh, Luke, thanks for mentioning like situa situations are different. I'm not a six, six foot three male <laughs> could maybe as readily <laughs> defend myself without some sort of, you know, tool to help along that. But it's, it's helpful to think through, um, you know, if I find myself in that situation, where, what, my, what are my values and what do I want to prioritize? Mm. 
Yeah, thank you. Yeah, one oh, of the things I just want to add on to that, Andrew, you brought it up, I think is a good point, is something we should probably, I mean, face as Americans, I, I've been lucky enough to travel outside of the country and talk with people who are not American. And looking in, I, I do think, generally speaking, Americans, we love our money and we love guns. And I think we love both of those because they both can give you a sense of protection and security in a way that gives you kind of a savior complex. And I think the problem, just like money is not inherently wrong, guns aren't inherently wrong, but when they're not used in moderation or not used in a in a in a in a good context or in a, in a wise way, they allow you to kind of be your own savior. And so, even though you profess to have faith in Jesus Christ, at the end of the day, you're your own savior. And I see that as a problem, and I see that as a way that that plays out. So. Um, have guns, have money, but have them in moderation and don't let those enable other parts of your pride and your sin and your kind of self-reliance to overshadow um, Jesus's role in your life. Yeah, that's good. All right, switching gears a little bit. Uh, this next question has more to do with how we respond to things kind of going on in our world. So Jesus seems to advocate for a nonviolent response to violence in his message. But what do you think about a response that is nonviolent and still goes against the law? So certain types of protesting could maybe fall in this category. Yeah, I thought Joel addressed this really well in the sermon with the story about Jesus in the temple. I think it was a really good example of civil obedience that wasn't personal it wasn't directed towards an individual person but yet it sent a message um it woke people up and it similar to we talked before it spoke truth to power and it, it called out power and held it accountable i really think what people trip on this is a very literal reading of romans 13 and kind of a very blanket um you know su subjection to authorities as it's described out there See Romans 13 as a blanket statement, whatever government does is right and you should follow it. Even the context later on, it seems like the whole sticking point for Paul's specific audience is they didn't want to pay taxes. <laughs> and so they're trying to get them to pay taxes. So for me, I would call back to a previous sermon we did in Jeremiah, more um, in Jeremiah 29, where it says, seek the welfare of the city where I sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on his behalf. For it's in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Um, this idea of like government is not always right. You don't, it's not a blanket thing to always go along with it, but also don't be absent from this society, be engaged in it. Yeah. And I think, you know, in Acts 4, uh, we actually see like civil disobedience happen from the uh, Peter and John, a couple of apostles are speaking the name of Jesus and um they go before the sanhedrin who are not necessarily the government in the way that like the romans are but they do have a lot of uh, authority and power and they command them do not speak the name of jesus anymore quit this preaching of the gospel that you're doing and peter and john say uh well what you know what do you expect us to do to listen to you or to god um we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard and so they actually say like we respect your authority but we're gonna keep doing this we're sorry but then they like 
they're prepared to take they they're willing to take on the consequences for their disobedience which is you know go to jail or pay a fine or something like that like and i think in a sense you can you can frame that as not necessarily disobeying because you're saying cool we'll we'll take the consequence for this we will we will we will gladly do you know go to prison for this and this is something you see in like martin luther king jr and that movement that he started like they spent a lot of time in prison they um were beaten and spat upon and burned with cigarettes and um you know you read some of the stories of the of what police did to them and um it's it's pretty shocking stuff but um they were willing to take on the quote-unquote consequences for their disobedience um and and did so nonviolently. And you know, Martin Luther King Jr. and all of his associates were directly taking this from Sermon on, Ma- on the Mount from Jesus himself. And we, you know, we kind of see the power of that. And we should, I think we should, you know, we 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 can't say enough about that example um, as Christians. So I think this question is particularly interesting in a society where we have freedom of religion that's protected by the law. Um, but when you take it outside of, of a place like the U.S. or maybe some other kind of Western democracies where that's not the case, um, I don't even think that Christians in those kinds of countries can ask, well, like, do I have to obey the law like verbatim in every single situation because they're very gathering together or praying or possession of a Bible would would find them in violation of, of their country's law? Um and so, yeah, I think that example from Acts 4 is a really good point, Joel. Um, but Christians can look at the laws of their countries and decide, like, okay, if following this law is going to go against uh, my faith or my values or, like, kind of where I want to place my life, then I, and I choose not to obey it, then I'm willing to take on the risks and the, and the consequences. Um, and then I'd, I'd never thought of that before, but I like the way you said maybe that's not even really disobedience then because you know what you're what you're uh, in for and you're willing to accept it if it comes to that yeah that's a great example it's helpful to think outside of our own context and remember that other people other christians other believers around the world have to answer these questions and think through them uh, in different contexts okay so last question for today uh in the sermon, Joel kind of said from the outset that he was going to uh, focus on what Jesus was saying about loving our enemies uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but this last question has to do with more examples of violence in the Old Testament. And I think it's important for us to talk about that as well, because we do believe that the Bible is one big story and it's all about God and God is the same God throughout both the Old and the New Testament. And so we do have to kind of ask these questions and try to understand how the pieces fit together. And I know this is also a topic we could do like an entire separate podcast episode on and fill all of the time. (laughs) But I think it'd be helpful if um, you all could share just how you've thought about that. um, And maybe for uh, keeping things brief, you could share it if there are further resources you would um, encourage people to check out that have helped shape your perspective in case they're interested in hearing more about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I have definitely wrestled with, you know, reconciling the violence that we see in the Old Testament 
with kind of this, this nonviolent uh, take of the New Testament. And um, it's something that I think we can plumb the depths of for an entire lifetime, for probably multiple lifetimes and never reach the end of it. Um, and maybe never even like really fully understand. Um, but I think in thinking of the Bible as, you know, one big cohesive story, um, the times in the in the Old Testament in particular where it seems like God is ordaining or commanding the Israelites toward violence, I think are the hardest for me to digest and I think for a lot of Christians. But um, some of the things that I've read, some commentaries and podcasts that I've listened to have helped me to see that in many of the instances in, in which God is doing that, it's actually a form of, of justice. Um, like the people that he sends the Israelites to, to, you know, go in and take out of the land are pr pr practicing child sacrifice and all other kinds of, of really horrible, evil things. Um, and so it's a sense of his justice. The other thing too, that I keep in mind um, in Ezekiel uh, 18, sorry, Mind get the verse right. Ezekiel eighteen thirty two. Um, God says to the prophet, "I take no pleasure in the death of anyone." Um, and so there are a lot of instances in the Old Testament where God gives people, whether it's the Israelites or another people group, a lot of chances to repent. Um, and there are lots of examples of of when they've taken him up on that opportunity and they've repented, and then God has yielded His wrath. And I think that the clearest example of that is the Ninevites in the Book of Jonah. Um, you know, and Jonah doesn't even want to go give them the chance to repent. He's like, no, they're so horrible and evil. I refuse to go. And then he gets swallowed by the fish and all that stuff. But the Ninevites do hear God's message, um, do hear from the, the prophet, like repent or, or, you know, God's wrath is coming and they take him seriously and, and they repent as an entire people in an entire city. Um, and then God, God yields and withholds his wrath. So you see lots of mercy, um, lots of opportunity, forgiveness, and lots of hope for redemption in some of these Old Testament stories. And that doesn't necessarily make it an easier pill to swallow, but that's just sort of how I've come to terms with trying to understand um, how sometimes it, it can seem on the surface level that the God of the Old Testament is like angry and, and wrathful, but then the God of the New Testament is like love and forgiveness. Um, and it's actually, you know, he's the same God in both in both parts of the Bible. Um, some resources to kind of just answer that last bit of the question. Um, the Bible Project has a lot of really good uh, podcast sections on this. There's one in particular where they're walking through um, the the series on the the Nephilim, the like giants, and that's a whole other <laughs> separate podcast to talk, talk about some of those. But the Bible pro Project in general, walking through the Old Testament, I have found to be really helpful as they sort of make the stories come to life and. Um, I mean, their whole like slogan or mission statement is that the Bible is one one big story. So I highly recommend them for really any Old Testament questions, but particularly this one, if they've been really helpful to me. Yeah, I think for me, um, you know, I think I think Andrew is kind of expressing like these should trouble us. Like I think it, it we should feel some conflict. I think or we should feel some tension maybe, um, and and try to be asking ourselves like how do these fit together and there's a lot of different you know ways to go um i think for me the i, I always want to you know we talk about this lot red city if we want to know who god is we start with jesus and i think that's where god wants us to start like that's where he's most fully revealed to us in in a in the most understandable thing we could humans could possibly have which is another human so we 
start with him. And I think we use that as our lens to look at everything else with. And so, so I want to, you know, I want to say, I think he's not just one part of the equation. He, you know, where we kind of stack all these different stories up against each other and say, well, they all kind of have equal weight. I actually think we got to say Jesus is kind of the, the one that we use to, to frame everything else. And when we do that, it does create some, some challenges. And I think Andrea's right. Like you can look and see a lot of the themes of Jesus's ministry present in the old Testament. Um, when you really look, um, and you know, there's, there's a couple of different ways. I know that people will deal, you know, basically a couple of camps that people fall into. And one is, is that one where we say like, you know, we can see these as being not quite the genocide that they look to be like, um, this is God enacting justice. Like there's language that is used there, like kind of like the flood, like to strike down these people who've created, you know, have ruined the land, have corrupted the land and God is accelerating these natural consequences that is going to lead in debt, lead to death anyway, by using Israel to do it. And some people point out like it's exaggerated language. Like clearly if you just look at even the command itself or read a little bit later on, like, they did not wipe these people out and they were never intended to like these people still exist. The goal is to get rid of Canaanite identity and religion. Uh, They're going after military outposts, you know, largely speaking, they're not primarily focusing on civilians. And so that's kind of one way you see people deal with it. Another one that, that I've read some stuff on, you know, is willing to lean into the horror of it all and is not trying to smooth the edges out but they'll say these stories serve another purpose um, for us. Um, And they, there's a lot of different ways, you know, a lot of different ways they might nuance that they might say, you know, God is allowing himself to be um, understood as a warrior God, which is like a common um, trope in the ancient world, like a warrior God who causes people to go, uh, you know, commit conquest and God is allowing himself to be wrongly viewed that way by Israel so that he can have this relationship with them. And then in that he bears their sin, you know, as the sort of God who bears our sin, he's willing to bear their sin so that he can use that as a way to get to, you know, develop relationship with them and reveal himself to them even more and more. Um, and, and so those are, there's a, there's some other ways that people will say like, you know, there's other, um, purposes you know that these these stories might serve like um you can even very early on in the church's history like early early church patriarchs were kind of making that argument too so you do see christian start history wrestling quite a bit with this um so yeah i mean if if this is a question people really want to dig into there's lots of places um you can go um a couple of them kind of for that the Bible project one that Andrea talked about is really good. And kind of in that vein, a couple books by a guy named Paul Copan called is God a moral monster and is God a vindictive bully. And then one by John Walton and Jay Harvey Walton called the lost world of the Israelite conquest. So those kind of fall into one camp. And then if you were looking to learn more about this other view, um, uh, Greg Boyd has a couple books out that are on this topic. Uh, one is called Cross Vision, which is a short version, and then one is called Crucifixion of the Warrior God, which is a much longer version of that book. 
Um, and then another book is by a guy named Randall Rouser called Jesus Loves Canaanites. And so, and actually you can find podcast conversations of where some of these guys discuss, like they come from different angles and have conversation about it. That I think are really helpful to kind of intramural debate among Christians. So yeah, those would be some places I'd recommend people to go. I'll admit, I, I honestly am agnostic on it. I'm not, I can see, I, I think there's a lot of good points made on both sides. And I assume the truth is there's probably something to come, you know, be commended from both sides um, for a really maybe complete view um, that we can just kind of, like you said, Andrea wrestle with our whole life, maybe. Yeah. I think what you both said was extremely helpful. I think I'd fall in line with a lot of that um, to kind of tease out something Joel kind of talked about. I do think the way I read the Bible is very much in kind of like, um, I think about like trajectories. I don't look at the Bible kind of as like a flat, kind of constant I look at what it's kind of pointing to so it seems like at the beginning we kind of start in Eden and then we get kicked out of the garden and then we're trying to get back into the garden and we see this people group in the Old Testament wrestling with serving this God that's very distant from them and then we get Jesus to come and live with us and then we get the Holy Spirit coming and see like there's this trajectory that we're moving on towards Jesus towards back to the garden and so for me, it, because I don't look at the Bible kind of as a flat line, but up to the right, going backwards for me, it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Why would we revert back to this thing when we're trying to be pointed to Jesus in a way? Um, and I think for me, what helps kind of wrap my mind on that is, is looking at the Old Testament and, and looking at what I would say, the way God accommodates things at the time, and we don't really know why necessarily he does. We brought up one in the sermon series talking about divorce. Um, there was this time where divorce with a certificate was accommodated, and Jesus makes it clear, Matthew, that that was not the long-term plan, and we shouldn't do that going forward. Um, so someone trying to make the argument we should go back to that seems to kind of be missing the trajectory and kind of the main point, starting all the way from the beginning. And so I think for me, someone harking back to a slaying of some people group by the Israelites is something we should do in 2022. For me, seems like we're not following the trajectory of the narrative that the Bible is showing. Um, and so Joel said this, but crucifixion warrior, God for Greg Boy, the cross vision. If you're more interested in kind of the accommodation factor of it, that book dives really into it. And so I would encourage you to, to, um, to research that if, if that kind of divine accommodation is something you want to learn more about. All right. Well, thank you guys so much uh, for taking your time and sharing your thoughts and wrestling through these questions that are not easy to wrestle through. <laughs> so we just really appreciate your perspective. I know it was helpful to me to hear all of your thoughts and I am hoping and praying that it will be helpful for the people at Resurrection City as well. And thanks again, if you are someone who submitted a question, we say this often, but we love hearing from you. And so we really enjoy doing these sermon series where we can hear your questions and, and hopefully keep that conversation going with people in your lives, people in your community groups, uh, just as you continue to process what it looks like to follow Jesus. And, and especially this fall as we're looking through what it looks like to follow him as he kind of lays it out in the Sermon on the Mount. So thank you all again. Special thank you to Andrea and Luke for taking their time to be here. Uh, we love you all and we hope to see you all on Sunday.